Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Thank you for tuning into the program. As Bible-believing Christians in America, it's difficult to conceive of the near total absence of gospel truth that is available in certain parts of the world. The name of our guest today is Tim. We're withholding his last name for security reasons. Tim is laboring among certain Persian tribal peoples of Central Asia that have no churches, no Bibles, and for most of these particular groups, not even a written language in which to possess the Word of God. As a linguist and survivalist, Tim has a combination of skills that make him uniquely fitted for ministry in this remote and rugged part of the world. But it is a truly God-sized task that he and his ministry partners have undertaken. How do you go to a place where there are no language schools, learn a dialect that has never been written, reduce that oral language to written form, all while seeking to disciple believers that will someday, hopefully, be able to assist in the translation of the Bible into their own language. And while this is the main mission, the families that are laboring in this particular part of the world also have to find some creative way to contribute to the local economy so that they can secure the necessary visa to live in a place without clean water for drinking, without a hospital for medical treatment, and on and on the list goes. You and I may not volunteer for such a task, but we can be thankful that God is raising up labors for just such a work. With that introduction, let's get into the conversation. Tim, you're engaged in reaching certain unreached peoples of Persian descent, concentrated and if we could say concentrated, in a very remote part of the world. And I think that if you were to begin to enumerate the ethnic and linguistic designations of some of these people that you're targeting, they would really be very unfamiliar to to virtually all of our listeners. So uh, raises the question, how exactly did you learn of these Persian tribes and how did the Lord direct your heart personally toward trying to reach these people with the gospel? It's really a kind of a long journey. It started back when I the Lord put missions on my heart, you know, when I, when I turned my heart to him as a young man, it, which is a different story, part of my testimony, but the Lord put missions on my heart and I would go to, to bed each night and I would be in tears and say, you know, Lord, just please use me somewhere for your kingdom's sake. And, uh, I really started researching people groups around the world and I had these books and resources that I would use. And, uh, I would try to find these small and, and remote tribal groups in different places like Brazil and the Amazon rainforest and other countries. And it went on for a couple of years, I would say. And then I realized that I wasn't really through that. I wasn't really, it became a thing where I wasn't trying to follow the Lord to the mission field. I was trying to follow my idea of adventure in combination with the work of the Lord. And so I just quit all that. And I was like, you know what, Lord, where, wherever you want me, that's where I want to be. You're just going to have to, you know, open some doors. And it was not long after that, that, um, a door opened in a country neighboring the country where we work. Now I had just gotten married at the time. My wife and I went and ended up moving to that country and served there for around a year. And then political things in that country took place. And there were, 
um, some circumstances, kind of like uh, riots and war and things. And so we were we brought out of that country. Well, during our time there, we were in contact with this Muslim tribal group way up in the mountains. We would travel to sometimes. It would take about 36 hours from where we lived. After being removed from that country, we found out that that group lives predominantly in the two countries where we're working now. And uh, so kind of said, you know, that's a clear and obvious path forward for us to keep working in this part of the world, to keep working on these groups that God had by that time developed a real compassion in our hearts for. So I don't know that I ever would have found out about these people otherwise, because they do have small tribes and, and small names. They're not well known, like you said. Sure, sure. So what can you tell us about these uh, Persian tribes? We definitely want to be discreet. But what can you tell us about their their geographical concentrations or, or uh, how many of these people are there? What, what's their religious and cultural composition? What can you tell us about the about these people recognizing that uh, discretion is important to, to protecting your ministry? There are about 200,000 living in our valley system. Now, we're in the middle of Central Asia, so um, it's all com- very mountainous. Uh, so each valley system kind of has its own people group thing going on. So about 200,000 people live in our valley system. And among those 200,000, that makes up about seven to 10 different languages spoken. So you can see about the size of the groups and the extent of each different language. That's one difficulty is, you know, you learn one language and it won't allow you to communicate with everyone. There's yet another and yet another. But, you know, in the, in the villages that we live among, it's a really tribal feel. And sometimes it's almost like returning to the Stone Age. Uh, the houses are, you know, primarily built of mud, stones, a few cement buildings thrown in here or there. Some villages don't have glass windows um, or electricity, and huge families often live together in one room. They grow their own food. Every spring, they're out there plowing with a couple of cows and a sharpened wooden plow point, <laughs> and uh, oh. so it, it really is like stepping back to a different time. But they're really a friendly people. Uh, they're very welcoming to outsiders and to us. So they're super friendly unless you somehow get into the middle of a tribal feud between them, and then it's exciting. <laughs> right. um, and re- religiously, uh, they're 100% Islamic. But it's interesting. They mix Islam with their with a kind of tribal witchcraft and animism type things. So it's not your typical Muslim environment. It's It's quite different. They're pretty hostile to anyone from their own people who would consider leaving their religious system to adopt any other religion. They're pretty hostile. Death threats, expulsion, starvation, whatever. Tim, geopolitically, the region that you're describing here would be what we would consider in missiological terms restricted access or creative access. Um, what are those, what do those kinds of terms mean and, and how does this figure into some of the obstacles that have to be overcome just to get access to, to these Persian tribes that you're seeking to get the gospel to? Now that's a really good question that you just brought up because you just touched on the topic that, that brings us the most stress of all the situations there. Um, how are we going to remain in the country? Because a closed country like we're talking by nature, it means that a country that you cannot live in for the purpose of witnessing to anybody or talking about religion or, and, and usually in these countries, you can't even work a job because they're 
often poorer countries and they want to save the jobs for their own people. So how, how are you going to live there? And I go to bed thinking about that each night and I wake up thinking about it. So you have to be creative. They'll allow you to live there in many of these places if you're doing something that is beneficial enough or that they like to have happening within their country and they'll grant you documents. For example, if, if a businessman were to come and say, you know what, I want to invest you know, $5 million in the local economy by starting businesses, they would be excited and immediately grant him a, that person a visa. But, but missionaries with a more limited budget, you have to get really creative and it is difficult. So pretty much it's a, it's a game of doing whatever will work at the time. So maybe that's working with a humanitarian aid group. If you have a skill that can translate to that, like if you're if you're an, a nurse or an EMT or if you have infectious disease qualifications or something like that, a lot of times that will get you access and grant you documents where you can live there. Um, otherwise, if you have infrastructure building experience or economic stuff, that can get you in. Uh, but ultimately, um, God will help you find something. There's there's always a way. There's a door and uh, the hard part is that it always changes. It seems to always change. You know, grant you documents for maybe six months, and then at the end of six months, you you find a new thing. So it's constantly changing, and it's constantly bringing stress because you're in a place where, at a moment's notice, they can say, "You know what? We're not doing that here anymore." So you're going to have to pack your family up, and you're just going to have to leave right away. Wow. So in addition to to those stresses related to just getting into the country, just getting the the visa that's necessary to reside in the country, there are also some uh, some challenges with living conditions, I'm sure, as well, because we're we're not talking about the West. We're not talking about that. This is truly third world. So some of the day to day necessities uh, and and in addition to in, in addition to just securing the necessities such as such as clean water. For instance, um, they're also because of the rugged terrain. There's there's increased wear and tear on your automobile, and and so what are what are some of the what are some of the challenges just in relation to the living conditions? Oh uh, yeah, uh, water has been one of the biggest challenges for us, and it, it is part of the parcel. Water is a challenge for the people there. It's very arid. It's very desert like environment. When we moved in, it was months before we had water we had to you know just go with buckets and uh, get water for washing and there would be the, the water is just run off from mountain streams that come from sheep pastures so there'd be little visible little wormies that you could see wiggling around in the water so you'd boil wow. it you know um and then you, you filter whatever for drinking but eventually um i built a water tank holding tank and a, a pump system and, and put water in but it was a real it was a it was a challenging thing to work around to you know try to keep clothes washed and keep the kids clean and things so that was that was a big thing but it was it was good for us to go through that because that's what the people there go through is water challenges and then the 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 roads that you mentioned with the wear and tear on the vehicle is is a big thing it takes it takes a lot of money to maintain a vehicle when you travel on those roads because it's it's about like off-roading um in order to reach our house you have to drive about 400 miles, uh, about 100 miles of that is just basketball-sized boulders. You're going about 10 miles an hour, and then you're blowing tires, and then every couple of trips, you put new ball joints and tie rod ends under the vehicle. 
um, <laughs> <Wow>. New Springs. <laughs> Given the remote uh, nature of this part of the world, the uh, and and those kinds of living conditions, uh, not to mention the cultural and linguistic barriers, which are which are the larger things to overcome in terms of interacting with the people. You certainly had a lot of preparation uh, to undergo before deploying to this part of the world. So what are some of the preparations that you made once you determined that this is God's direction for, for your life? And what particularly, what, what sort of specialized training did you receive before deploying to this part of the world? Right. You know, um, I do think preparation is an important thing. Everything that a, a person can do to prepare themselves for a challenge will help. Um, so I I did prepare myself linguistically by studying uh, language learning um, methods and phonetics and uh, syntax and, you know, st- studying the process to reduce a language to writing, basically, um, at the school where I worked uh, down in Texas. Um, also, I went and did uh, some survival training, also mountain guide training, avalanche rescue training and stuff because it's a mountainous area. So those things have all helped, you know, um, knowing that you can rely on certain in certain situations, you you're not lost. You at least have an idea of what to go, you know, if something happens or if you have to trek across a winter uh, mountain landscape or whatever, you, you know what to do. Um, but you know, going back to when I was young, you know, I think that God organized this and knew that I would need this is that, uh, I actually grew up with no electricity, with no running <laughs> water and stuff. So, um, that facing that kind of life on the field, it, it at least took some of the scariness out of it because I knew what it was going to look like. The same was not true for my wife. She did not grow up like that. And, and I've been amazed about how bravely she faces it all. And then I realized that, you know, uh, living conditions are pretty much what you make of them. You know, the the Lord, I've seen God help people that have no experience, no background, overcome these same obstacles and even worse, you know, and, and go on and thrive. I'm seeing my wife do it. So I'm, I'm pretty much amazed, but I am thankful. I am very thankful for the preparation that God gave me kind of growing up that way. But um, I'm, I'm really, really thankful, especially that my parents made me work hard as a kid because I think that's helped me more than anything. You know, at the end of yeah. the day, it's it's pretty much about sticking to a hard job. Yeah, and I, I was hoping to ask you about about that. I do know that you were raised in a Christian home around the things of God, but also raised in such a way as to cultivate a certain level of self-reliance and and hard work. I, I am wonder. I, I am curious because uh, having some knowledge of your of your family and your family background, was it ever a conscious consideration that your parents had uh, raising you and your siblings in the in the setting that they did with that sort of with with that level of really <laughs> really sort of sur- survival training <laughs> right. even from even from your youth you know toting water and and uh, uh, actually you know getting getting the the wood to burn to heat your home in the winter and all of these things was it ever a, was it ever a conscious consideration that these things might be useful to you in the realm that you're utilizing them now I don't know if that's why they set it up that way, or if, or if it was a, a additional benefit. But they would often mention to us, you know, you're going to use this on the mission field someday. They would often wow. mention that to us. So I don't know if they designed that on purpose with that in mind, or if they just said, you know, we're doing this, so 
here's a positive point. You're going to use this on the mission field. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sure. I'm sure that was a great comfort to you as a kid, splitting wood and (laughs) and toting water. (laughs) Yeah. You know, snow and you haul fire when you think, man, this is great because someday I'm going to use this on the mission. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. You know, the the goal is not just to survive on a foreign field. The, The goal is to get the gospel to these people that that have very limited access to the truth and to the word of God. That's right. And so the the Persian tribes that you are seeking to reach, as you mentioned, have seven to ten languages just in that in that valley system where you're working. Um, and most of those, as you mentioned, have no written form. Right. So if the goal is to eventually get the word of God to these people, and I, I know that that is a, a huge part of what's on your heart and, and what you are, what you are there to accomplish, it, that just seems like such an, um, such an amazingly daunting task. Where do you even begin that process, starting from an unwritten, in most cases, an unwritten language? How do you get from how do you get from there or or from the field with no with without the I mean, it's not like you can even go to a language school to learn these particular right. tribal dialects. So yeah. how do you go about this? Um well the biggest thing I'd have to say is it's very is a very humbling thing because when you first start going about it, you're in an environment. If you can just transport yourself in your imagination to an environment where you can't speak with anyone, um, everyone has their system that they're doing. They know how to live life, but you're trying to figure it out. But you can't ask anyone because, like you said, you can't go to a language school. You know, everything you do looks like you're an idiot. You know, everything you do and say, you could try to go out and just say hello to someone, you know, or ask you know, where to buy a certain kind of food or something. Everything you do looks just like you don't know how to live, you know, because, because you don't. Now you've left a life in which you do know how to live, you know, that, that gains a certain level of respect within our culture, but that all that's gone. So you're brought very low and then you have to begin learning kind of like a child would because there, there are no books in an oral language. There are no books to benefit from. You can't read anything about it. You just have to learn by extracting it from people that are passing by or people that you're sitting down with. Now, fortunately, because of the friendliness of the people, it's not difficult to sit down with them. Because even if they just want to laugh at you, they, they still <laughs> want to sit down and talk and interact, right? Right, right. It happens, you know. Uh, so you, you, you start... And you just start building it up like a child would, you know, you're pointing at things and my name, you know, my name's this, what's your name, you know, and then you start to build up from that. But fortunately, you know, hopefully you, you've studied a way in which all the things that you're learning, you have a framework to put them into to know where they fit. So, you know, learning to speak the language, hurdle number one, and then basically it's about extracting an alphabet from that spoken language. It, 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 this kind of entails a lot of science and procedures and stuff, but that's the first big step is to extract the information from that language to know which sounds need a symbol and then studying what type of symbols need to be there to write, to create this alphabet. So, and then basically you move on to writing down a grammatical description of this language for translators to use, which is we're kind of doing, um, it's an investigative process, which we're in the midst of. And then actually finding 
or developing indigenous people who will become co-translators is, is a massive challenge. It's really about working together with them on their own translation work. So developing people who are saved, born-again Christians, because those who are working on a translation of God's word, I really believe they should be. You know, sure. It shouldn't be just anybody. It should be born again. And who will latch on to the idea that not only can their language be written, but they can have God's word. You know, there's not a large pool of people to draw from there. It has to be a miracle from the Lord, you know, if when that to to bring those people about to and to educate them to a level to where they can be useful to sit down with you and, and work together on that. So it's it, it is very daunting. Uh, to be honest with you, it, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can scarcely imagine uh, it, to digress just a bit. There, there is a foreign language that that I suppose is is it's incumbent upon you to learn to communicate in the language that at least is required of you, say geopolitically. So you're 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 when you arrive there, you're if you're working with some kind of humanitarian operation or or whatever whatever you're utilizing to remain in the country. That there is a there's a trade language. So is it necessary for you to learn the trade language, and how accessible is that trade language to the to the people that you're actually trying to reach? Which which that trade language would not be their first language. Yeah, um, good question. Because we do have to learn the trade language. It's a it's a very important part. So that's step number one. You know, when when we arrived in this country, is to learn the trade language because. You've got to speak with officials about your documents. You've got to conduct your business in this language, you know. Um, and so, so let me interrupt you, Tim. Like, what it what for for the sake of our listeners that maybe are are less familiar with with how this works in a foreign field. When we say trade language, the people that you're seeking to meet are are essentially they're. they're they're a conquered people. They're, they're not, I say that, right, I, I don't know if right. that's a proper description, but they're not self-governing. It's not like you are going to encounter these people in positions of authority, in, in governmental roles. That's so right. that's, it's, it's for that reason that you have to learn the trade language. So w- what do we mean when we say trade language? Um, can, can you elaborate a bit? Yeah, I'll back up a bit. And I'm glad you stopped me there because the trade language is hard for us to understand being Americans. I mean, we have people from other nations living here, but we speak English, you know, in in these other countries, it's not necessarily that way. So the governing language, you brought up that word, that's a good description word. The the governing language is a language applied to the whole country. It's it's an official language. You know, if you go to school, you're going to study that language. If you work in government, it's going to be that language. And when we look at a map, you know, we sit there and look at a map based on the wall and we point to that, you know, we point to point to France and like they speak French. This is the language we're going to say, you know, when we point to that country. But within right. that country live so many smaller nations, if you will, nations that don't have their own indigenous land. They're just under the governance of this larger language. And that's that's really what a, what a people or linguistic group is. They're living underneath a larger um, dominant language or umbrella. And Many of them do speak that language, that wider language. That's the language that we're talking about as the trade language. All the business and trade is done in that language. And many of these smaller groups, people will speak that language, but you'd be surprised how many don't because they, they just live at home, they're self-sufficient, and they're just speaking their, I, I would call it maybe a their indigenous language or their tribal language. And so they, they can't be reached with the gospel in that 
in that broader language. So you, you learn the broader one and then, then you, you come down and you learn the smaller languages as well. And so, so just to, just to illustrate from another part of the world, if you were trying to reach, let's say some kind of remote Mayan tribal group in the Yucatan, your, your trade language is Spanish. If you're trying to reach certain um, Amazonian tribes in Brazil, your trade language is going to be Portuguese. And as you, as you state in, in Central Asia, where you're working, the, the trade language is known and spoken by some of these tribals peoples, but even those that communicate with in that trade language, it's not as, as we would say, I I don't know if, I don't know if, if you would utilize this terminology or not, but it's not their heart language as we might say. So even those that you can communicate with, it's still something of a, it's, it's perceived as something foreign to them, even those that have uh, use of the, of the language. Is that, a, is that an accurate description of how it's perceived by the national people that you're really trying to reach? It is. And I'm glad you put it that way. It is. Uh, you know, even, those, even those who speak this trade language, this wider language, um, it only goes so deep to them. Some of them only have a very rudimentary understanding of it, you know. And and think about it, you know, when you when you preach a sermon here, we all speak English. You're preaching in English, but you still struggle to find the words that will communicate the truth that's there. So you struggle to find words deep enough or or broad enough, and uh, they they don't have any of those words, any of those uh you know deeper or broader words. And when when they do know the word, it doesn't even really sink in or strike home to them. So even those that do speak the trade language, you're right. They have a serious handicap when it comes to communicating spiritual topics. Sure. And so one of the, one of the key aspects for you in, in the larger objective of getting the word of God into these tribal languages that at least initially are, are limited to uh, oral communication. They're not, they're not even written a big part of of getting from here to there uh, with 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 a written not just a written language but the scriptures in that written language you've got to have some relationships with believers as you stated that the goal is not just to is not just to get a a say a tribal linguist somebody that's familiar with the with the trade language as well as the tribal languages and is willing to work with you sort of a, a to, to hire that may be necessary at some point, but the goal is to get somebody who actually has the Holy spirit inside of them and, and thereby right. can actually uh, assist in some sort of substantial way with not just the brass tacks of a written language, but getting right. the words of God into that newly written language. So let me ask you this. When you went to this region of the world, did you, did you know of any believers when you set out on this mission? Were you personally acquainted or did you have a beat on some Christians in this region of the world? No, not, not a single one. And at the time, I do know one believer now who I know was there at the time, but uh, may have been the only one. Um, there, there, were, there was no one that we knew of. Uh, there was nowhere to start. You know, there was no... Uh, there's no framework or structure to work through. You know, no local church that we could go with and say, "Hey, you guys are doing outreach. You know, who, you know, where can we fit in? How can we start working here?" It was just um, a shot in the dark. You know, you sit down with, with some people, um, and God guided us to some really incredible, 
events, you know, and circumstances, sitting down with the right people. We knew it was from him, but sit down with people and, and end up just, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations with them. One thing leads to another. Come to find out there, there's a, there, there were a couple of believers, you know, once we got out there and really started to learn the area well. And, you know, now there are a couple more, uh, but it's still very, very slim. You, you can't even count it on a percent, basically. Right, right. So to encounter a believer from one of these Persian tribal groups that you're seeking to reach, I mean, that in and of itself had to have been perceived by you and your partners as a as a huge breakthrough. This is a this is a great blessing from the Lord. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, the, these these believers, you're talking about a believer without a written copy of the scripture. You're talking about a believer without a local church to attend. You're talking about a believer that's never had a pastor in all likelihood. That's um, right. So the linguistic element aside for a moment, there's still the this very tall order of discipling these believers because they have such limited access to the truth. So there's a twofold mission here, I guess, as as you interact with these believers. Absolutely, you want to you want to reduce this oral language to to a written form, but you also want the believers that you're working with to grow in grace so that they have the theological background to assist in Bible translation. So can you can you comment on how, on the relationship between those two angles with the very limited group of believers that you have to work with at this stage in the process? Yeah, you know, we underestimated how big of a job that would be in order to, you know, you you take certain things for granted. I mean, when you meet a believer, they're like, yes, yes, we've we've believed on Jesus. We know, you know, and you talk to them about salvation and they have it. But outside of that, you take for granted that they're going to know certain things about reality, about truth, about about their soul about heaven and about the the world and about the truth that the Bible communicates about who we are and where we are but they don't know any of that not not even not even really basic things so it's just a it's a process that it's it fills you with joy but you you sit down and you begin with the very basics things that we've forgotten that we even talked about as oh, as children growing up in the states and you begin with the very, very small things, but doing so, it it just it infuses you with with a joy to be doing so. You know that you're somehow involved in eternity. Some some something is is touching eternity there, and it, it kind of it'll give you goosebumps. You know, it's 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 a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, you have to begin with the really small stuff to start teaching them to start bringing them along. Well, the the whole prospect is so daunting. It it just as you as you stated earlier, the whole prospect is so humbling, and uh, there is the there is the element that you know it's humbling for you and for your partners just to to try to acquire this oral language, because it almost it almost requires you to go back to it. It requires you to be very childlike in your interactions. But then, in a in a broader sense, the 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 you know the objectives are so tall and uh, so daunting. It's a hum it's humbling, I'm sure, from a spiritual standpoint. Because if the Lord does not get in it, if the Lord does not help this, 
if the Lord is not guiding and that the Holy Spirit is not engaging these people and they're not cooperating, it's it's just it's just without God, it is an impossible mission from the word go. It is. It very much is. We can't. We cannot accomplish it. Only God can accomplish it, and we want to just happen to be there while He's doing that. <laughs> So I, I wanted to raise this issue that, that that illustrates, I think, the complexity of the entire endeavor that you and your partners have had to address here early on in the process of discipling the very limited number of believers that are dispersed in these remote regions. And even though you're dealing with the same people group, say, even from one location to the other, while they while they share an ethnic background, the language may vary. You you may be dealing with an entirely different dialect, um, which which is perhaps they can communicate with each other to some extent, but that's a that's a big hurdle for you because even if you learn one dialect, it doesn't mean that you can communicate to somebody in the other dialect. So even for these people that have access to the to the trade language and some of them don't even have that you you and your partners have had to address the question of what language do you utilize as you seek to disciple these believers and and so this is not an easy question is it so so maybe you could describe for our listeners why this is such a why this is such a, a challenging issue why this is such a difficult question in the first place you're right. It's not an easy question. You know, it seems straightforward like this. There's a person, they speak, you know, X language to some extent and just start preaching the gospel to them in that language. Do everything you can. And and there's a truth to it. You know, we have a we have a compulsion to preach the gospel, to disciple people. So we are discipling people at a low level in the trade language. But it can really be a trap because if you look around the world and look into these remote works, you can see so many tribes who were evangelized in a trade language that they didn't understand very well. And a couple things happened. Some get, some got saved, but it never seemed to take off or amount to much. And also, they drew in a lot of false doctrine that has stifled them from becoming a self-propagating and healthy church, because of all because of their limited understanding of the scriptures. Now we know from the Bible that no church can be strong with a severely limited understanding of the scriptures because we're all based in the scriptures. So by jumping ahead and just using the trade language, we could immediately build in a situation where they were going to be handicapped. So we sat down and we discussed this. There's there's a village where there's a a large family. Um I mean, the, it could be a it could be a church just because there's so many family members just itself um, that are believers and they're sitting down and they're asking us questions and they want to study and they want to read their believers. And we had to go, we had to leave that village and go home and sit there and and discuss this and say, you know what, we're using the trade language, we're speaking to them because we don't speak their dialect well enough yet. Are we doing the right thing? And it's an issue of time. You know, if we if we just wait to disciple them in their own language, it's going to take at least another year before we speak it well enough to do so. But that's one year. You know, 
a year in eternity. Well, what if some of them die during that time? That's a serious consideration. I mean, and that would bring so much heartbreak on you if that happens and you've chosen to wait. But if you go ahead and like, no, let's just let's just go ahead and disciple them in the trade language while we learn that language. What you come up against is you, you that that sounds good on paper, but what you come up against is you will not have enough time to do both. And you have to realize that and accept it because it is true. No matter how optimistic you are, oh, I'll be able to do both. You won't. You'll do one or the other. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just an equation about time. You will not do both. Disciple them in this language and effectively learn theirs because both of them are, are all-consuming things. And given the limited amount of, you know, it takes a week to get to that village. You're not going to be there for enough time you know, to do both. So it's, it's a real, it's a, it's a heart wrenching struggle because you want to see them grow in the Lord so badly right now, but we could really stifle the future movement among this people by jumping ahead and not realizing, Hey, they're not really understanding this. They're going to, we're going to hurt their growth for the future. So it's, it's just, it's, it's just a heart wrenching topic. There's, the call could go either way, but we decided we're going to pull back a little bit. We're going to encourage them and disciple them at a very low level in this, but we're going to dedicate the majority of our time to their language because we, I believe that by doing so, we'll give them the material to understand the scriptures more deeply, which is the, that's the seed of faith right there. And then where sure. faith springs up and knowledge springs up, growth will happen. So by by taking the time to learn their their own language, their dialect, um, that investment uh, is going to produce the, the 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 thought is that that investment of time and labor is going to produce some returns that could not be realized in the trade language, which is going to uh, not not only and really not only just limit them theologically. Um, but also that you run the risk of them continuing to, of, of, of the mentality being that this is a, that this is something that's foreign to us. This, because we're operating in the language of our, of our <laughs> conquerors, essentially that's of right. something that is foreign to us. So if you slow down, get it in their language, it'll be something that they own. And the idea is that that's going to be pretty critical to uh, a more organic growth of not only individual believers spiritually, but hopefully in time, a, a church that is self-propagating. Is that, that, I guess that's the idea. You're right. You use the word critical to their growth. And I think critical is the right word. You know, we, we believe, you know, after looking at these situations that, uh, that it will pay dividends. And so that's the path that we've chosen. But I, I think that each person in a situation like this just needs to be very sensitive to the Lord's leading and and to think about the longevity of the work that they're doing, you know, as they would, might make this decision. I'm not prescribing our decision for sure. anyone in this situation because it is it's a heavy it's a heavy topic, you know, to not disciple someone as fully as you as you think you sh- you could right now, but to wait on this learning. It's it's heavy stuff. Right. Well, we've made references throughout this conversation to to your partners in this work. 
And so I, I don't know if this was part of the original plan. I don't know at what stage this materialized, but evidently there's a team in place. There's a, there's a, a team approach to this, to this daunting task. So um, I wonder if you could just ad- address that a bit. How did this develop? What are some of the benefits with a, with a team approach, particularly to a mission like this with the, with the complexities, the language acquisition and so forth? How does the team component figure? Yeah, there is a team and it's, it's, God's, um, it's of God's doing. When we went there, we thought, we looked at the biblical model in the New Testament. We thought, you know, it'd be best if it could be a teamwork, but there weren't any others, you know? So we're like, well, we'll just, we'll just go. But God has brought us together with another uh, really strong young couple to work alongside. They have children as well, almost the same ages as ours. And it's a great situation. You know, I just don't think it would be possible in any other way outside of with a, with a partner, a team of some type in, in an austere environment, you end up relying on each other so much, you know, for companionship, for security, for sometimes even saving each other's lives. You know, we, we, we couldn't make it by ourselves. So there is a, there's another strong couple and there are others, um, that are talking with us. And, um, God is, it seems putting this area on their hearts to grow the team even more, which is really important. So, um, the teamwork I do think is the biblical model, but also just from a practical standpoint, uh, it's, it's just life-saving. So from a, from a practical standpoint, if, if you, if you could, and if, if you're not prepared to do this, that's, that's no problem. What, what could be some of the drawbacks to, to a team approach? Because I I guess this is a, there, there's two sides to this coin. Yeah. uh, That's a good one because the drawbacks could be that you are living so close to each other that you can get petty between one another sometimes. It's it's a danger for anyone. You know, if, if you think of uh, the model of a marriage, you know, you live so close to someone and over a few years you find yourself Now I'm not talking about you or me. I know we don't struggle with any of this. Yeah, brother, right, right. <laughs> you find yourself in a marriage getting petty about small things, you know, and then things can come up. Now that that concept can happen between members on a team because you're in an environment to where you're all each other has, you know, you, you, you're together every day, you know, you play games together, your kids play together and, but then your kids also fight together. And, you know, one parent might go in issues between parents and kids are it's a quick way to bring up issues between the adults, you know? So you're so close together. You just have to remember basically what it means to actually you know, be a New Testament Christian. It's about forgiveness and love and being above those things. You know, if you are always looking for everything to be right and to be fair towards you or even, you know, to your kids, you're not going to do well with, with love, you know, and, and moving forward. So it's the same thing. You just have to remember, Hey, there's something greater at stake here. We cannot be petty about these things. We are different people. And then sometimes you have to know when to just give each other space and be like, you know what, let's, let's, let's our families take a week and let's do our own things for a while. And then everything will be back into perspective. So it is a, it's, it's a work to create and perpetuate a good and healthy team environment because it, it is, it's easy for things to go wrong between people, things that, that wouldn't have to go wrong if you weren't living so closely together. Sure. Sure. 
We we covered uh, a number of the obstacles that you and your partners face in trying to access these these people in these remote regions. Some of the geopolitical challenges, some of the some of the difficulties with living conditions. If if we could briefly, I want to return to um, some of the cultural challenges, and and then perhaps some of the some of the other practical challenges. But specifically, the cultural challenges that you faced thus far simply in 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 seeking to adequately communicate the gospel to to a group of people that just really really think differently than us as as westerners which is which is one aspect and then mm-hmm. in some in some sense different than the than the scriptures and 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 a and a biblical view of let's say sin and personal responsibility and i i specifically had in mind that the the challenge that is that faces certain workers in foreign fields when they're working among a a culture that is collectivistic as opposed to our individualistic view of the world and responsibility and sin as Westerners, some of that is related to the influence of the Bible upon our culture. So how does that, what sort of challenge does that present for you if, as you try to address the gospel to the hearts of individuals? You know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the difficulties facing us right now. Um, you know, say a family has one person that accepts Christ from their heart. You know, they, uh, if they're ever bold enough to tell their family about it, you know, if it's, if it's, especially if it's a mother or father figure, then the whole family is like, okay, you we're Christians because you are. So we, you know, that doesn't always happen because sometimes the family might be like, okay, we're going to kill you. But, you know, if the family, you know, is open to even discussing it, they're like, okay, yes, yes, we're all Christians in this family. And when you get down to it, they haven't all believed. So they're th- sitting there thinking that their identity is set on what another member of their family does, but trying to explain to them that it's not that way before God, you know, that each person is going to give an account for their sin individually. It really flies in the face of the way they view the world. You know, um, they're like, no, the world is sinners. All Everyone in the world is a sinner. But me, I'm not individually a sinner no i've I, I i do right i live good you know so what number one why would i why would i need to discuss my individual accountability to god because i'm not an individual i'm a family you know so it gets really it gets really murky you know because yes you you have this investment you want the whole family to believe but then you know that they're not <laughs> right Right. Yeah, that's a that's such a sensitive um, element of of relating the gospel to to people in a collectivistic society. And I don't know that there are any shortcuts. I think that this is one of the one of the it just it further illustrates the importance of of plowing of patient, continual presentation of basic biblical truths like sin and and the, the the gospel and so it seems to me that these things are it just takes time to break down that mentality and and i i suppose that this further illustrates how important it is that these people have 
the word of God in their own language. Because apart from that, how can you change the the, the thought patterns of people that are just immersed in something? At times, it's it's an an, an unbiblical way of thinking. That's you you nailed it right there. Because you know when you're going to sit down, there's there's nothing. There's no wisdom. There's no there's no thing that you can say to change someone's cultural worldview right away. Um, so number one, not having the scriptures there that they can speak to their hearts through the through the spirit. You know, that's that's a different level than than my words. Not having that is re- very limiting. That's why we said the the priority is to get the scriptures for these folks because the scriptures can work on their hearts. And over time, that uh, the you know the the seed breaks the rock. You know, as the scripture right. sprouts in their hearts, it breaks the rock. Now we can't do that, but the scriptures can. So that's that's why it is the priority. Yeah, Amen. Um, I'm I'm wondering if 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 you could just maybe give our listeners. I don't know how specific you could be, but as as has been addressed in the course of this conversation, it can be really difficult for a Westerner to live in this region of the world. So, what are some things that you've had to do work wise just to remain in the region? I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Uh, I, I can share a bit about it. Um. You know, it, it is complicated, as you say. There's You always have to be doing something that you can show that you're doing or accomplishing something that they, that they want that can be, um, you know, become a part of their economy or something like that. The real struggle is you're going to spend so – we, we spend so much time doing that. You know, it, 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 can, it consumes your whole life trying to maintain that. You know, so it can – some things that we've done is uh, – doing business, building, um, building a business with a local partner. We've done that. Um, that has advantages and disadvantages. It's very complicated to do legally and, and financially. It's an effort called business for transformation. You know, you present this plan where you build businesses that transform the economy. It, it takes a lot of money, you know? And so for someone on a budget for, you know, just for life, you got to really set aside for that. It's, it's really tough. So afterwards, um, we've done projects like working with groups, um, non-government, non-profit organizations that drill wells for villages and different things like that, um, humanitarian aid groups and things that done that, you know, also tried to be a part of developing the tourism and outdoor industry in the country, being very mountainous, you know, and because I'm a mountain guide and stuff. So done that. And then uh, the, there's, as I said, it always changes, you know, and, and what we do next you know, sometimes we don't even know, you know, what are we going to be doing next month? What, what is our whole life going to be oriented around work-wise? Uh, I don't know. So it goes on from one thing to the next. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what are some, what would you say are some other challenges related to travel and, and maybe in particular health that you've faced? One of, one of the things that perhaps you don't have access to that, that we certainly would here in the West is, is just good medical care. And so, uh, an accident or a medical emergency can create some, some unique stresses for a family like yours in a region such as this. So what are some, what are some of the other challenges that perhaps you could elaborate on for our listeners? Yeah. You know, um, the, the medical care is a big thing. And I think, I think as a parent, it's comp, it's compounded so much because you, know, you have these little children they're relying on you for their safety. You know, you've brought them to this environment. And then, uh, uh, Levi, my, my oldest son, he was, um, three years old. He was almost four years old and he fell from a swing and broke his leg. 
it was a really complicated fracture. And given the absence of any decent medical care there, we decided to take him elsewhere to have him treated. So um, I carried him and, you know, we flew to Kazakhstan and then on to Turkey. And um, that was, you know, so incredibly painful for him. And then for me as a parent, that just was, it was really, really challenging, you know, to get through. And then what that did was it kind of bred fear. And um, you can really let that eat at you, you know, fear of something else, even something worse happening. And now, you know, we live even farther out. It would just be, uh, you know, complicated to get anything, any type of medical care and stuff. So that's, that's, it is a real challenge. You know, the Lord helps us to overcome fear. And that's what it means to, one thing that it means to follow him is to overcome, you know, fear like this. But it remains a, a pretty constant challenge. So some of the ways we deal with it is by, you know, educating ourselves more on medical care to be to be able to do more of, of our own. And, um, the, you know, the travel, the distances, you know, maintaining the vehicles, it's it's a, it's a constant challenge. You know, you're off-roading all the time and uh, and you're always replacing parts and you've got to be able to do that, you know, on the side of a, of a, of a cliffside road, you know, so that's a, that's a challenge for sure. (laughs) See, the, there've been a lot of challenges, a lot of trials, a lot of obstacles, a lot of opposition, but you've also seen some, some encouraging gains, uh, even this early on in the work. So what are, what, what's some of the progress that you could point to, uh, so far in, in this very daunting, um, task that you've undertaken in this part of the world? I'm glad you asked that because it is easy for us to to focus, even in our family, just to focus on the difficulties and the challenges. But there have been some neat things happen. Um, it's it's baby steps. It happens in small steps. So this may not sound as exciting to most, but what I'm about to relate was so exciting to us. Um, visiting in a village, and we had talked with some of the elders of that village about the possibility of having a Bible written in their language. You know, not not telling them that we were there, you know, for any of that, or that we were translators or linguists or anything, you know, and just, but talking to them about it to get their unfiltered take on what that would be like and how supportive they would be of it, you know, believers as believers. And, uh, you know, at the time they just looked confused, you know, and they just looked at each other and didn't know what to say. And it was like, they hadn't ever before considered that their language could be written. So it was, we just went on and did our thing. And then a couple months later we returned and we returned and they had a, a prayer meeting and they were praying for the Bible to be given to them, that God would give them his word in their language. And it, it was like they had considered it and it had dawned on them that their language had words. Why couldn't it be written? Wow. And that if it were written, why couldn't it have the Bible? And they had dawned on them what that could mean for them. And they were all sitting there and lifting up their hands and asking God to give the Bible to them. And seeing that just brought just huge, huge feeling of joy, like a a massive breakthrough in that God had done that. That was, you know, like I said, that may seem like a really small thing because they don't have the scriptures yet. But to us at the time, it it was just an incredible moment. Amen. This is a, obviously not a short-term effort. This is a, this is a life's work that you've undertaken so what is your long-term vision for these Persian peoples uh, within your lifetime? And it, should the Lord tarry even beyond? Well, um, we know it's God's work and that it's bigger than us. But the end goal 
is that there would be indigenous churches to spring up and that could educate new believers in the faith and that that would spread. You know, that's that's ultimately what I want to see. But that being said, if during our lifetime or ministry, we saw a Bible become available in their languages and a number of key leaders trained to use it and teach it, that I feel would be a miracle and a dream come true. Amen. Amen. Before we finish our conversation here, maybe two uh, parting questions. First of all, what what would be your advice to someone who is interested in gospel ministry among unreached people groups or in restricted access nations? How would you how would you counsel somebody to begin? And what are some what are some uh, points of advice that you might relate to someone that is interested in in that kind of ministry? Uh, I I really think my advice would have to be to visit someone that you know is conducting profitable ministry in, in that kind of environment. Because one of the big hurdles is fear of just not knowing how it's done or how to get started. So visit, get a, a vision of what preparation that you need, and then just go. You know, the, the field is big. And I feel that people get hung up waiting for the name of a place to jump out at them or something. There, There is a name. It's called the world, you know, and that's the name that God gave us. You know, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And I hear stories from time to time about missionaries who approached a sending agency and said, you know, where are we needed? We'll go. Just tell us and we'll go there. And that shows me that they were dedicated to the mission of God in its entirety rather than to some individual effort or adventure or something. And I, I respect that so much. I think independent Baptists, being independent, um, have lost a little bit of that attitude maybe. And so I, I think visit to learn some of the ropes and then you know just go. God's going to open doors and you're going to end up places that you couldn't have found on a map anyways. That's that, I think that's tremendous counsel. I, I don't know that I've heard it put that way. But I think that that's most helpful. Tim, I appreciate so much you sitting down for this conversation. I feel like it it is it has been profitable. I'm so thankful for for how the Lord is using you and your family. We didn't get into it much today, but I tell you, one of the things that I'm so thankful for and is God has blessed you with a wife that is willing to go to truly the uttermost parts of the man. of the earth and think about that God all the time man her. every day <laughs> yeah praise the yeah. lord i i know that you could not do what you're doing without her and i'm and i That's am for sure. so thankful that that god's given you a help meet that is uh that is is willing to to go to such a remote place and and uh so god bless you brother i i'm so i'm, I'm so appreciative for uh what you're doing for the work of missions and and for your willingness to sit down. So as we finish the conversation here, how would you like for our listeners to pray for you and your family and your team as you labor among these Persian tribes? Well, um, I, I also want to just say thank you as well. You know, um, um, doing what you're doing and being behind us and even talking through these things with me. I can't even tell you how much of an encouragement all of it is, you know, it makes us feel very, very connected, loved, supported. And, um, and, and like, we're all 
we're all one team. So I just want to say thank you, brother. And, uh, you know, for your prayer support, what you're asking about just now is, is, uh, is the main thing, you know, with, without the prayers that are behind us, we would, we would have lost a long time ago. So as, as far as prayer goes, we would really, our main request would be for folks to pray that we would be filled with the spirit and led by the spirit because more and more, I believe that anything done outside of that is, is fruitless. And also for the safety of our team, you know, the, the area is very hard on teammates and we really need to, we really like to see all of them stay and keep them in in the effort. Some have not on our team, but in the area, some have been killed. You know, some have, many have been just um, kind of emotionally crushed or whatever. So just pray for the resilience and safety of the different members of the team. Uh, Thank you again so much for sitting down and uh, we sure appreciate what you're doing, brother. God bless you. Well, thank you. And God bless you as well. And I've been a real joy for me to talk about these things with you. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation today. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said that we are laborers together with God. The Lord Jesus has invited us to take his yoke upon us and learn of him. Of course, a yoke is for plowing. Working in the Savior's field is labor intensive. Now it's bearable, but it's only bearable because he bears the brunt of the strain. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is labor nonetheless. And in this work of missions, we have our part, and God has His part. We can't do our part without Him, and He won't do His part without us. As I heard Tim describe his upbringing and how that is translated to mission work in Central Asia, I couldn't help but think of Paul's observation that he was separated from his mother's womb. If you look at the life of Paul, the greatest missionary to have ever lived, you are looking at a man that was uniquely prepared and equipped to fulfill the ministry that God had given him. But make no mistake, he did not perform those duties in the power of the flesh. He accomplished what he accomplished in the power of God. Tim is a repository of useful skills with advanced linguistics training, survival training, medical training, along with proficiency in auto mechanics and construction and water treatment and even mountaineering. But when he or any of God's ambassadors have done all that they can to plan and to prepare and to labor, we are still cast upon the Lord because the Great Commission is simply impossible apart from Him for whom all things are possible. I think it's most appropriate that we would close the conversation today with Tim's request for prayer that he and his partners in this great work, in this daunting work, might be filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. Because apart from the Holy Spirit, this job cannot be done, no matter what preparations or qualifications the laborers may have. And as we conclude today's Great Commission conversation, allow me to remind you that whether you and I ever learn a foreign language or deploy to the uttermost part of the earth, we too are part of God's labor force. You and I are laborers together with God. We better figure out what that part is. Maybe it's as simple as praying for folks like Tim that are in difficult to reach places with an impossibly difficult task, but with a great God for whom nothing is impossible. Thanks again for tuning in. 
I hope you'll join us next time on Great Commission Conversations. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I do welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until the next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond and to facilitate others as they preach the gospel to places that we've never even heard of. 